0: What a comfort it is to know that the Lord pardons sin. Here we have a Savior who is the friend of sinners, just as the prophet Isaiah declares, saying to Isaiah to tell the people, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Beloved Christian, if you have put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, rest assured of this. that for everyone who confesses their sins and turns from them will find pardon and grace in Christ who bore our sins at Calvary. What good news this is. I now like to uh, welcome up to this time Ryan and Olivia Church uh, with Charlotte as well as the elders in the session of this congregation. Oh, We've got matching shirts today too. Our Lord Jesus says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Our Savior instituted baptism as a sign and a seal for His church. It signifies our joining to the church and the great privileges that come in being united to Christ by faith alone scripture teaches us that sin has defiled the whole human race even from birth and yet baptism signifies uh, what happens when we trust in Christ that our sins are washed clean away and yet baptism does more for it signifies that we belong to Christ not just to the church Just as Israel was baptized into Moses through the Red Sea, so too is Christ our Red Sea, having delivered us from sin's tyranny. And so we are called to live in light of our baptism, to repudiate the world, the flesh, and the devil. Just as Charlotte this morning is baptized, it is the church's duty and the parents' obligation to train her in the faith, to teach her what it means to remember her baptism. That she is to put her hope in Christ and Christ alone and not her own works. And that she is to lay hold of the promises that are offered to her freely through Christ alone. In the Old Testament, circumcision signified one's union with Christ. Abraham believed and he was circumcised, and yet he was called to circumcise Isaac before he believed to show that the promises of the gospel were for Abraham and for his children. And in the the New Testament, the sign has changed, but what it signifies is not. Now baptism signifies Christ and His benefits towards us. And just as the promise was for Abraham and his children found in Christ, typified, so now in Christ fulfilled is the promise for us and our children through the sacrament of baptism. So now, Ryan and Olivia, I'll put these questions to you as this is a delightful day not just for Charlotte, but it is a day of uh, solemn duty for y'all as you take to yourselves vows that you will raise her in the covenant. Do you acknowledge that although our children are conceived and born in sin and are therefore subject to condemnation, that they are holy in Christ by virtue of the covenant of grace and as children of the covenant are to be baptized? Do you promise to teach diligently to Charlotte Lavender Church the principles of of our holy Christian faith revealed in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and summarized in the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church? Do you promise to pray regularly with and for Charlotte and to set an example of piety and godliness before her? Do you promise to endeavor by all the means that God has appointed to bring Charlotte up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, encouraging her to appropriate for herself the blessings and so fulfill the obligations of the covenant. Do you want to hold her? Okay. might be easier. Here we go. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. Charlotte Lavender Church, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. She's even now learning to mourn her own sin. I'm going to put my Bible. There we go. To the congregation, as Charlotte is received into full communion in the church, the whole congregation is obligated to receive her, for in Christ we are members of one another. Christ claims this sister as His own, and He calls you to serve her in love. Therefore, you ought to commit yourself before God to assist her in her Christian nurture by godly example, prayer, and encouragement in our most precious faith and in the fellowship of believers. Ryan and Olivia, praise the Lord that God has seen fit to give you, Charlotte, that of all the parents On earth, He has delighted to give her to you, that you might raise her to know Christ as Savior. Just as you have promised, I charge you to be faithful in fulfilling your vows this morning to raise Charlotte in the faith, and humble reliance on God's grace through the diligent use of the means of grace given to nourish her in the faith, that of the word, sacraments, and prayer. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you continue to grow your church. Uh, As you have taught us and instructed us to uh, uh, fulfill um, and perform this uh, sign and seal, we pray that your spirit would be at work even now, working in her heart that one day she would lay hold of Christ even as you have laid hold of her. Uh, Please, we pray. Uh, Do not allow a day for her to grow where she does not know you, where she, looking back on her life, would not remember a day apart from the knowledge of the grace that is found in Christ our Savior. Bless Ryan and Olivia, we pray, bless this church as we, as a family, uh, band together uh, to raise her in the faith that we might pass down that faith that has been once for all passed down to the church that it be communicated faithfully to the next generation. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This is for y'all. Thank you. We do have cupcakes and a time of celebration after the morning service, and we encourage you uh, to welcome uh, Charlotte uh, as a covenant child here uh, into the body of Christ. I encourage you to turn with me now to the book of Isaiah, chapter 65, for our Old Testament Scripture reading. Here we see, uh, towards the end of uh, this glorious book, a book that is So often in the early church referred to as the fifth gospel, the Lord Himself addressed the wicked on the last day as He marks out and distinguishes the blessings of the people of God versus the judgment that will fall upon the nations as the Lord brings an end to history itself. Isaiah chapter 65 verses 13 to 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, My servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, My servants shall drink, but you, you shall be thirsty. Behold, My servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, My servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart, and you shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and hidden from my eyes. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered, nor shall they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And now turning with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. As we give our attention this morning to one simple verse, uh, but a verse of great profundity and a verse of great comfort, as the Lord, the Messiah, the King of His kingdom comes in the midst of darkness, pronouncing a blessing upon the citizens of heaven, saying this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word and ask that You would open our eyes to see the great blessing that consists in both sorrow and joy as we come to You, learning what it means to be citizens of heaven. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Shortly after C.S. Lewis's wife died, he wrote uh, a brief but powerful little book uh, called A Grief Observed, where he uh, wrestles with uh, the very sorrows that had ripped his heart in two as his wife died of a very aggressive and painful form of cancer. He describes her death as an amputation of his very soul. At one point, he describes uh, this beautiful tapestry that's hanging in a castle and, and describes death as. As if somebody had taken a loose thread on the tapestry and pulled it, and it had caused the entire thing to unravel. This isn't just some ordinary loss that we feel uh, from day in and day out. I remember when I was a kid, and uh, I used to live on this dirt road in Middleburg, Florida, And I remember coming uh, home one day, and the dirt road was no longer dirt. It had been paved. And I burst into tears because I didn't want my dirt road to be a paved road. This is something far more serious than this. This is more than the loss that we feel when somebody has taken the McRib off the McDonald's menu. There are some griefs that tend to unravel our very sense of existence. I think we all feel it when it comes to the reality of death. It might be the loss of a a parent, a spouse, a friend, or even a child. We've we've already encountered such grief, such sorrow in Matthew's Gospel. Back in chapter 2, you remember with, with Herod's slaughter of the innocent, it had left the mothers of Judea absolutely inconsolable. As Rachel weeps for her children, for they are no more, she refuses to be comforted. A grief that is so deep that causes her to wail and to think that there is nothing that could ever console her. She banishes the thought that there could ever be anything given to alleviate such a wretched misery. Right? What blessing could the Messiah bring when death has reached wreaked such havoc on the earth. I think we've all experienced, or if we haven't, we will at some point in all of our lives, a pain that no bomb seems that it could ever solve or salve. Death becomes a problem that no philosopher can fix, and no politician can alleviate It doesn't matter who we are, Christian or not, this world is full of sorrow and misery and we feel it, each of us, to varying degrees at portions in our life. We feel the impress, and yet the question is, how deep does that sorrow run and how deep can that sorrow run? If you recall from a few weeks ago when we began working our way through the Beatitudes, These blessings that Jesus pronounces are not merely natural dispositions, even as we considered last week where Jesus pronounces, uh, or two weeks ago, a, a blessing upon the poor in spirit. It's not simply a blessing upon all those who are materially poor. So here, Jesus is speaking of a certain kind of grief, a grief that runs even deeper than the painful losses that we all experience. Here, Jesus pronounces a blessing on the citizens of heaven who live as exiles here on earth. It's not a different grief from unbelievers. What I'd like to present for your consideration is that it is a deeper grief. That the believer knows grief more deeply in so many ways than the unbeliever can, even in their greatest moments of pain. Of course, we ask, how does that sound like a blessing? And that is why we have to pause and consider this one simple yet profound statement from our Savior as he pronounces a blessing not only of comfort, but he pronounces the blessing of grief. A grief that gives way to everlasting comfort. Doesn't sound like a blessing, but it is. So I'd like us to consider three things this morning. First, I'd like us to consider the matter of the grief of which Jesus is speaking Secondly, I'd like us to consider the comfort that Jesus brings. And then finally, I'd like us to consider the comforter, the one who brings such comfort. So grief, comfort, and the comforter. I think it's a common temptation to read the Beatitudes as some type of abstract sets of laws or principles uh, that applies to everybody across the board. Uh, So often many of us look at the Beatitudes and treat it like uh, Newton's law of gravity. It's just something that applies to everybody. It's just a natural law, as it were, a basic principle that is true for the whole human race. But we have to remember that's not what the Beatitudes are here. Rather, this signals the, the beginning of Christ's proclamation that the kingdom of heaven has erupted into the earthly sphere, And blessings are now proclaimed upon the citizens of heaven who live in a world of darkness. They who themselves are now the light of the world. Christ has come to upend and undo the sin and the misery into which this world has been thrust. We have to understand the Beatitudes as they are given within the greater context of the history of salvation. As our first parents Rebelled against God and cast the world into an estate of sin and misery. That's what our shorter catechism, question 17, teaches us. This is what the Bible teaches us that death has not always been the way things are. Affliction, sorrow, misery, poverty, hunger, sickness that is unnatural. To human existence. Death is unnatural. Death itself is a part of the curse. It was not a part of the original created order. By Adam's rebellion, he has thrust the whole human race into a double misery, a double affliction, and a state of sin and an estate state of misery. That's what Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 5, through the disobedience of one man sin entered the world. And because sin entered into the world, now death has come through sin. Both rebellion, hostility against God, and then all the miseries that attend the consequences of sin that we all suffer under. Yet why, if I could be so blunt, why is Oregon such a cesspool? Why is any state or any country such a cesspool. Fundamentally, the problem is not the distinction between rich and poor. More fundamental than the political programs that address wealth and poverty. More deeply than those laws that try to address injustices, rather real or perceived The root problem of our misery here, whether it's in Oregon or Florida or Russia or Ukraine or England or anywhere else on the face of the earth, the root problem is the problem of sin. And of course, it's so easy to decry the sins of others. If you don't believe me, just go into social media and see everybody who always wants to talk about the sins of other people. Who here has, in reading the news, discovered your, your least favorite politician caught in the latest scandal and in your heart of hearts you secretly deep down whisper, yes, finally. Now he'll get his just desserts and in one sense you're happy that it has happened. Because now your own political program or whatever it is that you cling to in this life you think will advance for the better. How many of us mourn the sins of those around us? Maybe more pointedly, how many of us mourn the sins of those that we don't even like? The sins of others that we don't like? So often we gloat. We have this sense of pride and self-righteousness. I thank you, Lord, that I am not like these others. Perhaps more importantly, we can ask ourselves how many of us mourn our own sin. I think so often what we do instead is we go, ah, well, my sin's not a big deal. Just look at X, Y, Z. Right? The great trump card that everybody always wants to play, right? At least I'm not Hitler. That's setting the bar pretty low. If you ask me, if you want to compare our own moral failings or accomplishments uh, to a 20th century dictator. It's not natural to mourn our own sin. Rather, what is natural for us is to cover it up or to excuse it. Or if the rest of society approves of this sin, to flaunt it, to wallow in it, to relish it. But what Jesus is doing here is he is reorienting our gaze and our perspective. Because that is not heaven's perception of sin, is it? How could God, the just judge of all the earth, ever wink at the slightest infraction against His holy law? And yet, how many of us wink the eye at our own sin or the sins of those around us for one reason or another? One of the great blessings of the kingdom here is that you're being made fit to see the world from heaven's perspective. This is something the Spirit does in our hearts. As it begins working in our hearts, teaching us to mourn sin. Both our own sins and the sins of the world around us. And perhaps it's easier to mourn the sins of those around us. More difficult it is when we let the spotlight of God's Word shine on our own hearts. You see, here we begin to see the inner logic of the Beatitudes as the first Beatitude we considered the other week when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are those who come to see their own spiritual bankruptcy, that they themselves, that we ourselves, are not righteous on our own merits that we are morally deficient. We are morally bankrupt. But here, Jesus takes it a step further. It's not just a bare recognition like, oh yeah, I'm a sinner just like everybody else. No, there's a real grief and a mourning that, is under, that, that, that we undergo here. A real grief over sin. A real hunger and thirsting for righteousness. For an alien righteousness that would satisfy this wretched condition into which the human race Has been thrust. You know, when you read the prophet Zechariah, probably not the most common prophet that we're familiar with, if you are familiar with the Old Testament prophets. Yet Zechariah himself promises, he prophesies of a day that this will be one of the marks of the people of God when the Messiah arrives. Zechariah chapter 12, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look upon me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn. Zechariah promises a great blessing upon the people of God, that they will in fact come to realize their own sin and mourn over it blessed are those who mourn it's not a natural grief it's a spiritual blessing it's a spiritual proclamation as the spirit does this deep cleansing work in our heart by causing us to see how deeply we have offended a holy god that we might turn and be cleansed you read 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and Paul makes that distinction between worldly grief and godly grief Worldly grief is that kind of grief that is, it's the sorry I got caught kind of sorrow. But here is a grief that runs even deeper. It's not simply, I'm sorry for the consequences that I have brought upon myself. It It is a woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. As Isaiah says when he sees the Lord, high and lifted up on the throne. It is a true mourning of one's own spiritual estate that does not feel good. For those of you who have ever been convicted by the Spirit, it's not a fun time. It's something we might not even describe as as a dark night of the soul, as David does in Psalm 17. But what's the alternative? to continue going our entire lives thinking we've done no wrong that everything is hunky dory everything is just peachy and then we die and then the final judgment comes and we find out that we are damned for eternity see what Jesus is 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 bringing us to here is there is a great blessing in grief not just the comfort that is brought but the grief itself It's a necessary pain that we go through because repentance is necessary in order for us to be forgiven. It is the means by which we are cleansed. It's not the grounds for our pardon. The death, the blood of Christ, is the grounds for our salvation. And yet, the great benefit that we have, one of the great benefits we've been given through the death of Christ by the Spirit is that through the preaching of the Word, the Spirit begins to convict us of our sin and our misery. Opens up our eyes to our destitute condition that exists were it not for Christ. Christ who comes to deliver us from our sins. Right, nobody wants to hear that they have cancer at any age. But better to hear it early so that the doctors can treat it than to go on pretending everything is okay, right? Which is it might not sound like good news to get that doctor's report, but better to hear that news early so that it could be treated before it is too late. The same true is here with the gospel. The message we hear week in and week out according to the law of God, every one of us are dead in our trespasses and sins. This is not fun to hear. If you think it is fun to hear, perhaps we are shining the spotlight not on our hearts, but only on those sitting around us. But as the law examines our heart, it's a painful process. And yet it is a great blessing because this is how the Spirit works to make us fit for heaven. Godly grief is a great spiritual blessing where we mourn our sin, but where we mourn not only the sin into which this world has been thrust, but we mourn the misery into which this world has been thrust and plunged as well. Blessed are those who mourn as they see the world from heaven's vantage point. Regarding sin and sorrow, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Of course, we have to ask what kind of comfort is it that is brought here? What we see here, it's a robust robust comfort to alleviate our anguish in troubled times. It is a a balm that remedies the problem of both sin and misery. How many of us mourn a, a world at war? A society on the verge what seems at times on the verge of civil war. The constant violence, the slander, the oppression, the murder, the abortion. The rebellion against God in so many ways informs how many of us truly mourn. The misery, the ways in which people continue to be hurt, the ways in which people continue to hurt one another. And yet we hear it find in the gospel that the, there's a comfort that, that the gospel truly brings. You know, is it any wonder that the book of Isaiah, that the latter half of Isaiah, has so often been called the book of comfort? Nearly a dozen times from Isaiah chapter 40 forwards, we see the repetition of the phrase and the promise of the comfort that the Messiah will bring at the inauguration of his kingdom. The one who comes to bring comfort and solace to those lonely exiles. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry out to her that her iniquity is pardoned. Sing for joy, O heavens, exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing for the Lord has comforted his people. He will have compassion on the poor and the afflicted. Isaiah 51, for the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all of her waste places. Not only does he pardon her of her sin, he will make the desert like the Garden of Eden. O afflicted one, storm tossed and not comforted, I will lay your foundations with sapphires. Rejoice, all of you who love Jerusalem, all of you who mourn over her, that you might be satisfied. For the Lord says this, Behold, I will extend peace to her, peace like a river. And you will be comforted. And you will rejoice. See, what we find here is not just a double grief, a sorrow over our sin, a sorrow over the misery that this world has been plunged into, but also a double comfort that addresses both the sin and the misery into which this world has been plunged. Plunged, an assurance of pardon for all who turn to Christ, a restoration of all that has been lost in the misery that this world has been cast into, a misery that will be overturned on the last day when death itself will be undone. The book of Revelation tells us where the good shepherd takes his precious flock and guides us to springs of living water, and it will wipe away every tear from our eyes. The great comfort of the heaven, uh, the great comfort of heaven, is the hope and the assurance of the forgiveness of sins, and is the hope of heaven itself, the new heavens and the new earth, where death will be undone. Matthew Henry, in commenting on this particular blessing, says this, that the happiness of heaven consists in being perfectly and eternally comforted. See, this this is where the real comfort comes. This is a comfort uh, and a balm. It's a salve uh, that, that runs so much deeper than any hallmark greeting card ever could. We look around us and the best that the world can offer is this bombardment of sappy, feel-good blurbs that simply say things like you are good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. Where the solution to grief is to pretend that everything is okay, and yet it offers no promise, it offers no assurance, not even a hope or reality of redemption. Simply the Gentle yet brutal command to pick yourself up and to comfort yourself. And yet, we see here our Savior not telling us to comfort ourselves. He's not saying, if you are in the midst of grief and mourning, cheer up, it's all going to be okay. As if He is calling you to generate and self-generate your own brand of comfort. No, the promise of comfort that He gives is a promise that comes outside of ourselves. This is where the grammar is important. Note the passive voice here. He does not say, blessed are those who mourn for they shall comfort themselves. He said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. That there is one who comes to bring everlasting comfort. A comfort that undoes sin. A comfort that undoes all of our sorrow. It is a comfort that comes through the Comforter. The Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of His Son. As I've said before, let me repeat again so maybe we can all remember. The Beatitudes are not bare abstract propositions This is a proclamation of blessing that the Messiah has finally arrived with a kingdom that comes in the midst of darkness to upend all sin, misery, and death. We cannot interpret these blessings apart from the one who gives and pronounces the blessing. Christ is the one who comes to comfort His people. Isaiah chapter 61, the very first sermon that Jesus preaches when he makes his way from the wilderness to Nazareth, as he opens up the scroll of Isaiah. You can read about this in Luke chapter 4. What is it that he proclaims? He says, This, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, we considered two weeks ago, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to comfort all who mourn in Zion. The great blessing is that your King has come. To give a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That those who were once weak and destitute might be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. That the Lord Himself might be glorified. Just as the Lord promised through Isaiah, as we heard read uh, for our Old Testament lesson, here is one who comes to inaugurate the arrival to proclaim the, the heralding of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth that will be revealed and unveiled on the last day, where death itself will not be granted entrance into this heavenly Canaan, where the mourning will be upended, where sorrow will give way to joy, where grief will give way to comfort, where the sound of weeping and mourning and distress will give way to shouts of jubilation and song. The comfort that Jesus promises here is a comfort that only he can give It is a comfort that no politician, no greeting card, uh, uh, no uh, um, uh, grief counseling therapy group can give. Here's an everlasting comfort that deals with grief all the way down to the deepest root. And it is a comfort you cannot have apart from Him. To have this kind of comfort only comes to those who turn to Christ as their Savior and Lord. But what good news it is, here is a king, not a tyrant. Here is one who in his gentleness and in his mercy comes to remove all your sorrow, not to impose new burdens, but to lift you up from the muck and the mire the One who has come by taking to Himself flesh and blood, who as the last Adam has come to undo all that the first Adam had done, that He might not leave us to wallow in our sin and misery, but to bring us up and to deliver us from it. He did it by taking our sins at the cross, Just as the prophet Isaiah says that this Messiah would truly be called the man of sorrows. The one who in the fullness of time was born under the law that he might bear the curse of the law that was due us at the cross. Who just like Jeremiah comes as the weeping prophet mourning the sins of the people even to those who would not repent as he enters Jerusalem proclaiming, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, the city that stones those who have been sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not have it. Here's one who comes to mourn the sin of the world, even those who have rejected him. Here's the one who comes to the grave of his close friend Lazarus and weeps like a baby. As John writes, becomes enraged in his spirit. Where Lazarus becomes the object of Christ's grief, death becomes, as B.B. Warfield writes, the object of his wrath. As Christ's soul is held by rage, Christ advances to the tomb as a champion armed for conflict conflict and flaming wrath against the foe as He comes to smite death on our behalf. To speak of Christ who delivers us, Christ who mourns our own estate of sin and misery, who not only saves us from the evils that oppress us, but who has felt for and with us in our oppression. And under the impulse of these feelings has wrought out our redemption. Christ who ascends to heaven and still does not leave us comfortless. Jesus himself says to his disciples the night in which he is betrayed, I will not leave you as orphans. I must go and ascend to heaven that I might give you the comforter. As he pours his spirit out on his church to convict us of our sin, though it might not feel like a blessing, it is a great blessing indeed who guides us in the path of righteousness, who protects us from our enemies, and who comforts us as He molds us to look like our great friend Christ, the man of sorrows, and leads us to heaven. How does God comfort us? He comforts us by giving us the Spirit of His Son. A double comfort to reckon with our sin and our sorrow, both now and forever, and a double comforter. Christ in heaven, whoever lives to plead our case before the Father, to know that we've been given free access to the throne of grace, that as we mourn our sin, we will find comfort and assurance of pardon. Not just Christ in heaven, but the Spirit here on earth, who has been poured out into our hearts, who grieves with us, who mourns, who moans and groans and prays, even when we do not know how or what to pray. Right, this is it's a great blessing. Jesus here is not talking about a natural grief. Rather, this is a spirit wrought grief that leads to a spirit wrought comfort. We might mourn like others in this life. But we find that as believers, we in fact mourn more deeply. As we mourn the cause of all our sorrow. We mourn, but we do not mourn like those who have no hope. For God has promised to give us one who will comfort us. And will wipe away all the tears from our eyes with the blessed hope of redemption. It is the hope of heaven. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do thank you for the word that you give to us, the promise of comfort, that even when we are afflicted by your word, it is for discipline as sons, uh, that we might repent and be restored and grow and know more deeply the grace of God and the comfort given through our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us, we pray, we ask in Christ's name, amen.